So let's get started. My name is Richard Parker. I'm a senior fellow here at the Shorenstein Institute. Uh, and uh, if you, if I know, if you, if you uh, students want to come up and sit at the table, please feel free. We've got five or six seats. If you want to join the conversation more directly, come on up and use those seats. Our guest today is uh, Ari Berman. He's a contributing writer to The Nation uh, and uh, has written an extraordinarily good book called Herding Donkeys. Uh, we've heard a lot about the problems of the Democratic Party in terms of mobilizing itself and going in one direction at once. It appears that the direction that they are going in right now is in one direction, but not perhaps the one that the White House or the DNC would like to see. Um, the best estimates I've heard are that now something like 40 to 50 House seats are at risk, um, could be more. Um, and so the issue of how to take a party that two years ago swept into office with the most implausible candidate, uh, winning 52% of the vote, and a fresh sense of America starting over, where we go from here. All right. Well, thank you, Richard. This is a real uh, honor for me, and, and somewhat surreal, I have to confess, um, to have Richard introduce me, and my former editor, Karen Rothmeyer, is here, and you know, all these people, Tracy Kidder, and all these people that, uh, these famous authors in this whole institution, to, to actually hear me speak, so hopefully I will not, won't disappoint. I think for, uh, for people who write about and study politics, I mean, I think the Kennedy School is sort of like the mecca, right? I mean, this is always where you, uh, where you want to be, and I think it's a good, it's a, both a good and a bad time to be discussing it. I mean, sort of half, a lot of the stuff I write about in the book is unraveling, and we're, we'll talk about it, um, but I think it's also, you know, like I said, the, the book is called Hurting Donkeys, but the subtitle is The Fight to Rebuild the Democratic Party and Reshape American Politics. And, you know, we put that fight word pretty prominently um, on there because, I mean, this stuff it, it is not over. But I'm just going to give a sort of quick overview of, you know, why I wrote the book, what it's about, um, and then just sort of we'll open it up, it seems like. Uh, I, I decided, so I cover American politics for the nation, and I had covered a little bit of 04, but basically the two six the 2006 election from Washington, but traveling all around the country, and the 2008 election from New York, but traveling all around the country. Um, and I was really struck um, after the election um, by two things. I mean, one was the ability of Democrats uh, to cobble together a very expansive big tent majority um, and to win in all these places that no one thought they could win in. Um, and I had spent a lot of time in these states, um, you know, Indiana, North Carolina, Colorado, et cetera, et cetera, and I was interested in you know, how they did it. And then, um, the other thing is, I was really struck, um, you know, covering the Obama campaign very closely. Uh, I, I went to Northwestern, and I've grown up in the Midwest, so I followed Obama from the very, very beginning. Um, and uh, I was actually at Northwestern right when he was running early, early, early on in the Senate. Um, and David Axelrod was my professor then. Um, and I noticed that uh, we had probably like uh, 25 kids in our class, and we had to volunteer for a candidate as part of the the job. And Edward, uh, Axelrod was pushing everyone to work for Edwards at that point before he got fired. Um, and uh, and sorry, this is on the record. I should be careful what I say. Uh, and uh, and and. Um, and I noticed, you know, 15 out of the 25 kids in the class were volunteering for Barack Obama. And I thought I was pretty, pretty uh, politically uh, well aware. I had no idea who Barack Obama was at the beginning of his class. Um, so I was like, wow, this is what, you know, what is going on? Who is this Barack Obama person? Which is the same reaction for everyone in this room had, you know, at a, at a sort of later date. Maybe earlier at the Kennedy School. I don't know if, if he was through here uh, making the rounds early on. But, um, 
But so I was really struck by the grassroots uh, political movement. We we can debate whether it is a movement, but whatever the grassroots political operation that came through the Obama campaign and his unique ability to inspire all these people. And I thought, you know, after the election, I thought there was going to be a lot of books about Obama, but I thought they were going to focus either sort of on Obama the man, sort of like David Remnick did in his great mm -hmm. book about Obama, or they were going to focus on the sort of inside dynamics of the campaign like Game Change did. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, I want to tell the stories of the organizers and the activists who really define this campaign that are often pushed out of the picture. Mm -hmm. And because I really thought that the Obama model was that all these people were going to help transform Washington. I thought this is going to be a really... This, these people are going to really matter um, going forward. And so that's what really led me um, to write the book. And I start, the, the arc of the book takes place from Howard Dean to Barack Obama, and it traces that history. And I start with Dean because Dean was another person I was really fascinated by because I really thought you know, Dean was, ran the first campaign of the 21st century. I mean, whether you like him or not, you can't deny that his campaign looked radically <coughs> different from the Gore campaign and the Bush campaign in 2000. That, you know, when he, when he decided to oppose the war and when he really challenged other Democrats to stand up to George Bush's agenda, um, these people really rallied behind him. And, and all, you know, he hired this you know, mad genius campaign manager, Joe Trippi, and they had this uh, vision of really uh, using the internet to transform politics, but not only that, um, really lowering the barriers of entry um, for how politics was done, both online and offline. And so you see all of a sudden, Dean becomes this incredible political phenomenon in all these innovative ways. Um, and even after you know, his campaign um, crashed and burned in Iowa, uh, I really thought that th the more interesting story was the innovation in Dean's campaign, what would happen next. It was like, because he failed, people sort of wrote everything he did off. And I think that proved to be a mistake because you know, a year later, Dean comes in and becomes chair of the Democratic Party. And everyone's like, what the hell is going on? Like, this guy was, his political obituary was pandering. Like, he was supposed to be gone. And I think what was interesting, he became chair of the party by bypassing the traditional party establishment, which I, I think, you know, has really never been done before, at least in the sort of modern political era. And uh, I thought that really opened up all sorts of new possibilities um, in politics. You know, if you can um, sort of bypass at least enough of the existing uh, party channels to become chair of the party, then I thought, you know, a, a lot of, of new stuff can be accomplished. And of course, Dean um, did this 50-state strategy, which was all about uh, rebuilding local Democratic parties in red and blue states alike. And to me, that seemed like a very smart, innovative idea, surprisingly controversial, but he really challenged this notion of red versus blue that we're in after 04 and said, you know, these states are more dynamic, they're more fluid, they can change. And I think you know, the results in 2006 and 2008, I think, prove that out if you look at all these Democratic victories. But to me, it was clear from studying the primary that and following it and covering it that the Obama people really tried to build on the Dean model while the Clinton people basically just ignored it. And that was all incentive-based. I mean, the Clintons had, you know, Bill had won two elections with the 1990s campaign model, and they figured that's still going to work pretty well. Uh, the Obama people saw that the Clinton people had a lot of the establishment support. They said, you know, the only way we're going to be successful is if we do something differently. And so they brought in, you know, a number <coughs> of prominent people um, from the Dean world, and I sort of traced that in the book, and, um, you know, interesting, uh, interesting characters. Uh, and what, what, D what Obama was able to do was really build an alternate power base. Um, um, and, dra and then just drastically expanded um, as the campaign um, churned on. But because he was able to have um, this bottom-up participation fused with a top-down structure, 
he was really able to grow his campaign much more rapidly than the Clintons were um, because they were sort of locked in um, to this top-down structure. And then when they didn't, you know, win um, Iowa and they, they won New Hampshire, but when they started stumbling, you know, they ran out of money, they didn't have the organization, whereas Obama just, you know, started cruising. And um, the people really built the campaign in all these different states across the country. And Obama was really just, just um, able, able to sort of ride that wave um, that he helped inspire. And so that was really the situation um, <coughs> You know, and I was in Grant Park on election night, and you saw all these states come in. It was this really euphoric moment, um, and uh, and so I, I kind of sold my um, book proposal after that, thinking, uh, <coughs> you know, what's going to happen next? And you know, what 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 happened next was I don't think any of us could quite uh, foresee it, uh, which is that um, in some very the question I'm asked most often now is what happened. You know, how did we get from that euphoric Grand Park moment um, to the situation we're in today where the Tea Party is ascendant, the right seems re-energized, and, and Democrats are facing a lot of losses um, in the midterms, and there's really no way to sugarcoat that. They're in denial, <coughs> I don't think a huge tidal wave is about to hit them. Um, although I do, I do think they'll, they'll retain the Senate barely, and then, and then they'll lose the House. But uh, in any case, um, so what happened? I think a few different things, um, just really, really briefly. Uh, so Obama came in promising uh, a new political model. And his <coughs> political model was, I'm going to take all these different activists and organizers, and I'm going to get them involved in how the country is run, and I'm going to form a political counterweight to the entrenched interests in Washington who are blocking change, right? Um, that, however naive that, that may be, that was the model that was sold during the campaign. Instead, what happened is he got in, he saw that there was all these incredible problems he had to solve. Um, and he, he picked up the phone and he called Rahm Emanuel. Then he picked up the phone and he called Tim Geithner. Then he picked up the phone and called Larry Summers. Then he picked up the phone and called Robert Gates. And all of a sudden, all these establishment people are at this top echelon of the White House, along with some of the Chicago people. And the grassroots people are kind of pushed out. You know, um, They're kind of said, it's sort of like, <coughs> let us handle this, and then we'll get to you later. Um, and I think as a result of, of some of those decisions, um, the sort of sense of ownership that the grassroots felt uh, during the campaign was not present, did not translate into the Obama White House, nor was it really a priority. The priority uh, for Obama was, you know, how to figure out how to you know, solve these crises and, and get a lot of stuff done um, on Capitol Hill. And they have gotten a lot of stuff done um, on Capitol Hill. I don't think anyone can argue with that. I mean, the stimulus, health care, financial reform, a lot of stuff that nobody talks about, student loan reform, national service expansion, et cetera, et cetera. But, it's exacted a significant toll because Obama was a new politics guy and he's been seen as passing legislation in a very old politics way. The health care bill was so messy and was done with so many different backroom deals that that may have been the inevitable way of doing it, but at the end of the day it almost felt like a legislative failure um, because people weren't expecting um, that that was the way things were going to go on in Washington, that Obama was, was supposed to be the unique guy um, that changed that. And, and the, the, the premise of the Obama campaign was that the grassroots organizing could change the Washington sausage making. But it turned out that the Washington sausage making, for whatever reason, um, just sort of continued as always. And thus, um, the sort of anti-incumbent um, fervor that was felt in you know 06 and 08 has basically just translated to 2010, where now Democrats are in power, people don't like how they're running government, so they're about to throw them out. And you know, we'll see what happens. <laughs> In, in 2012. And the, the other thing that I think is interesting is the, the, and this sort of relates to the enthusiasm gap, but the economy has affected key segments of Obama's base more than anyone else. 
It's really affected young people. It's really affected you know African Americans and Latinos. It's really affected sort of single working class women. I mean, these are the really core of Obama's constituency. And if they're losing jobs, if they're losing their homes, if they can't find work, they're going to be a lot less motivated um, to get out there and, and volunteer um, you know, at the same rate um, as they did before. And then I think the third thing is we talk about um, this grassroots uh, political movement that Obama had. Um, and I think you know, after the election, when there was, this, there was this decision about how to engage them, and, and they weren't sort of crucially engaged, if you look at the, the rise of the Tea Party, the Tea Party comes about in August 2009. I did an event with uh, Marshall Gans last night, and we talked about this. Um, and uh, you know, and Marshall says this in the book: like, if you look at when um, when the Tea Party really came out in August 2009, that was when a Congress left um, for their recess without a health care bill. Negotiations had broken down behind closed doors with the gang of six senators had been dragging on forever. We didn't know if Obama was for public option. His supporters weren't told meaningfully how they could fight for A, a public option if they wanted one, or B, just the health care policy writ large because no one knew what the bill was at that point and what there was to fight for. And I can vouch for this because I was in Colorado at the time with Obama organizers, and they were like, what are we supposed to do? They didn't know what they were, they were meeting with congressmen and they didn't know what to tell them. And that was the very moment the Tea Parties hijacked the debate um, and started yelling about Obama, Stalin, he's Hitler, he's Mao, and, and the Democrats are like, we don't even know what the policy is. What are you guys talking about? Mm -hmm. And I think basically we've been in this situation of, as I call it, asymmetric warfare ever since, where the right is really mobilized and they know what they want. And Democrats are on the defensive, not really being asked to mobilize until very recently, um, and are basically playing catch up. Uh, and I think that is sort of the essential dynamic um, heading into the 2010 election. Now, I think that dynamic could very well shift in, in 2012, and I'm happy to talk about that, but I think that's, you know, basically um, where we are today, um, essentially, you know, how I, how I see things um, and uh, sort of what I talk about in the book. That's great. Uh, let me ask you first a question about these Obama organizers. Uh, where are they? What are they doing? What's happened to them? Well, there is a really a mass um, dispersal after the election. And I think the sort of grassroots <clears throat> becoming demobilized works both ways, which is that a lot of people after the election said, we worked so hard, we're done. Mm -hmm. We're going to go to a really nice inauguration party. You know, maybe we'll get into a ball. And, uh, and that's it. We, we trust Obama to, to mm -hmm. solve these problems. And uh, that was not the model followed by the right after Reagan got it. I mean, they pushed him over and over <laughs> and over and over. <laughs> to follow through on his campaign promises. And there was no sort of countervailing um, pressure on Obama. And you know the progressive groups were either trying to buy into the administration, or um, when they, if they weren't um, bought in, they were basically told by the administration to be more supportive. So the, the administration was never really comfortable with that outside pressure. Um, and they, they never have used it like Reagan did. Um, in terms of the organizers, a lot of different stuff. I mean, some of them just went back. Um, a lot of them went back to their daily lives. Um, some of them went into organizing for America, which mm -hmm. is the post-election arm of Obama's campaign. And you know, this is really interesting because organizing for America was really supposed to be the vehicle 
um, that would m meld the Washington sausage making mm -hmm. with the grassroots organizing. My own feeling, and the OFA people don't like it when I say this, but that you know, the, or, OFA was not a priority for the Obama White House. Right. It was put there, but like you know, Rom and Jim, the deputy chief of staff, Jim Messina, they didn't want anything to do with it. I mean, they were like, this is just going to be a hassle when we're negotiating with people on Capitol Hill. At the same time, you know, David Plouffe kind of steps out of the picture. He had been the guy in the Obama campaign who was really open to grassroots politics. The interesting thing is people sort of think that Pluff had a roadmap at the beginning and that's how things worked. It wasn't. There was a lot of fights internally in, in the Obama campaign um, to blend bottom-up politics with a top-down structure. And I talk a lot about that in the book and I think that's something that's still not very well understood. And so Pluff's the really one guy in the inner circle who's, who's who gets this stuff. He sees it working. He sees Obama raising an incredible amount of money over the internet in small donations. Mm -hmm. He sees grassroots activists and organizers shaping the campaign and making a tremendous, insane amount of phone calls and door knockings and delivering votes, you know, proving they can deliver votes, not just, you know, a sort of fad like it was under Dean. Um, and when Pluff exits, goes and writes his book, goes on the book tour, was he here? Yeah, he yeah. comes to Kennedy School, you know, um, kibitzes with everybody. No one was tending the shop. I mean, no one was making these really crucial decisions about what would happen to the organizing that was so crucial to Obama's campaign. Mm -hmm. And now they're belatedly, they're scrambling. They're like, we need to get the base ginned up again. But it's not that simple. You can't just turn grassroots politics on and off. The right had been trying to engineer the Tea Parties for 20 years unsuccessfully. When it emerged, it was chaotic. No one knew it was coming. And it's been a steady build ever since. So. I mean, I think, I think, so I think it, there's two things. I mean, one is, was just that a lot of them checked out and mm -hmm. those that stayed in are, they're still in there. They're still fighting away and they're still doing, I think, the, the best they can do, but they're not empowered like they were before. Yeah. All right, questions? Tracy. I just, I, I two, one, one of the slightly concise remarks, which is just, I, and I don't mean it in a side way, it's just that I wish we could do, do away with the term grassroots. So I don't really know what it means, and it, it, it's one of those terms that's so broad and vague that we kind of think we know what it means and don't. Yeah. <laughs> but but I but you, you put it in that context. I think I get it. Well, you talked about them dialing up for Tim Geithner and all the other and Ruben and those and Summers. Um, do you? I, I'd love to be enlightened as to. I mean, there was a really big problem that yeah. we inherited, and yeah. and I don't think that. The, the, the whatever the, the basis has made much of that, or has been able to get much traction on that. But why did he call those people? Yeah, I mean, where, <coughs> what, what what kind of constraints was he under? Yeah, well, I think as you mentioned, the, the very fact that he was in you know the midst of a serious crisis, um, crises, he yeah. wanted the people with the most experience, and so um, by definition, <laughs> some of them had helped create it, and I think they were a little they didn't think through the the policy and the political ramifications of putting some of these people who helped create the problem back in charge of it. I mean, Richard, you know more about sort of economics than I do, but I mean, it was a very one-sided economic team. Um, the countervailing voices really weren't in there. Um, they weren't in the room. And so, and uh, on foreign policy, you know, much the same thing happened. And then I think on the legislative front, which is I wish <coughs> talk a lot more about in the book, um, I think Obama in my opinion, he overlearned the lessons of the Clinton and Carter years, which is, you know, both Clinton and Carter brought a lot of their own people, you know, first from Georgia and then to Arkansas, and they had a lot of trouble dealing with the Hill. Um, and Obama was similarly inexperienced, <coughs> more inexperienced than Clinton and, and, and Carter was in terms of his background, and knew that he'd have to deal with a, a, a Democratic Congress to get things done. 
um, and figured, you know, if he just got the best people from Capitol Hill in his administration, they would figure out um, how to work the legislative process to their advantage. And I think, you know, you can argue that they did that, that they were, they very successfully worked um, the legislative process. The card. Huh? Played the dashel yeah. card with Flint. But, but I think, you know, again, um, the way some of these things passed, I think, was so messy that they didn't really think of the consequences of doing it just that way. Um, and I would argue, and I put a hypothetical, that I think that if he had gotten more of his supporters involved in pressuring Congress, he would have been more effective, for example, on health care. I think when Max Baucus was dragging his foot on health care for a long time, in these sort of phantom negotiations um, with Republicans who are clearly not going to vote for the bill. I mean, they got signals pretty early on um, that some of these these three Republican senators were not on board. Um, but Baucus, for whatever reason, uh, held out hope. I, you know, Obama had a few hundred thousand, you know, supporters in um, Montana. I mean, I think that if he had gotten his supporters, you know, to put significant pressure on Baucus and said. Come on, Max. We need to move these this along. You know, this bill has stalled for way too long. People are getting really restless. Um, I think that would have had an impact because that's what the Tea Parties have shown. They've shown that if you put pressure on people, people respond um, to some of that. Now, it wouldn't have worked in any in every case, but this is a model that was not tried. So, I mean, we don't know how it would have played out. We only know how it's played out um, in, in the current atmosphere. Okay. Next. Yes, thank you. Uh, I think it was pretty much expected. I mean, the expectations from Obama were so high that we couldn't uh, meet them. So. Yeah. And there's one thing to make a campaign and another thing to run America. You know, it's not the same thing. And it doesn't have that much of experience. And you know, what you suggest to take all those people that helped him and continue to work with him, in other words, you, what it means is that he, he won't be able to be a president. I mean, you have to decide whether you're going to have your campaign forever. Yeah. Or you're going to do your job. Well, he could have done so, both, uh, I think. What, what, what I wanted to ask you, I'm, I'm not sure that you could have done both. I'm not sure that you have been to politics, by the way. Huh? Have you? Have I been in politics? Yeah. No, I've just covered it. Okay. So it's two different things. I'm assuming so you've not, been in politics. Yes, I am. <laughs> so it's not the same thing, you know. You know, to run a, a campaign, it's, a, it's more than 100% work. Yeah. And to be the president of America, it's 500% of Yeah. So it's not that easy to combine those. So what I wanted to ask you, do you think that he's been, that he will be able to overcome his personal crisis? And, in, and if yes, in which way? His what crisis? His personal crisis, his leadership uh, oh. crisis. Well, I want, I want to pick apart um, a, f a few things that you said, because it, this is an interesting um, debate that, that's going on. I mean, I, I unfortunately think that to be able to govern now in this increasingly hostile parts of the atmosphere, you basically have to wage a permanent campaign, which is not only a campaign to pass, but a campaign to communicate what you're passing. And Obama, I, I talked to, um, I was on a panel on uh, in Texas on Sunday with uh, Jonathan Alter at the Texas Book Festival. And Jonathan Alter said, well, Obama believes that good policy is good politics. Right. And I'm not sure why he necessarily believes that. Because if people don't know what your policy is and what it'll do, then they don't think it's good. They don't, it's not going to be good politics. Because if he's not explaining you know, how the <coughs> stimulus is um, 
you know, changing America for the better, if he's not making an affirmative case for the health care bill and the way it's helping people and will help people, if he's not talking to students about the reform of student loans, if he's not talking to them about the expansions for national service that exists, then people are either going to sour on these policies or they're not going to know them um, at all, and his presidency will be undermined as a result. So in that sense, I think there has to be a level of, of campaigning and communication um, that's always present. I think they're learning that lesson right now in terms of, um, in terms of doing things differently uh, for 2012, that it's not just enough to sort of pass things in the conventional way and assume that, uh, you know, that it'll take care of itself, um, that the politics of this stuff really does matter. And if you don't get the politics right, it could really hurt the policy. Mm -hmm. Because if he loses both houses of Congress and these guys are chipping away at health care, well, um, you know, he, he, if he, and he doesn't get reelected, I mean, I don't think this thing's going to get repealed, but it could get severely gutted. Um, same with a lot of his policies. I mean, they don't go into effect. This health care doesn't go into effect until 2014. There's still a lot of time for the Republicans <coughs> to mess around with it. So. Um, Obama's unlike Carter in the sense that if he's a one-term president, who knows what's going to happen to a significant um, chunk of, of his agenda. I don't know what's going to happen after 2010. I mean, there's, there's sort of two different lessons that are somewhat at odds with um, that the Obama people could learn. One is that they could say, we've looked too extreme. He sort of floated this in the New York Times Magazine interview. I looked too much like a tax and spend liberal. I did too much. There was too much overreach. That's the conventional narrative on the right and sinking into a lot of the mainstream media. And if you take that lesson, then you, then you look sort of more like to the Bill Clinton model after 94, which is to say that you start to cut a lot of deals um, with Republicans. Uh, you try to start to do a lot more triangulation. Uh, you know, the likely things he'll work on is, you know, he'll let all the Bush tax cuts expire. Um, <coughs> oh, no, so he'll extend them all. Mm -hmm. He'll extend all the Bush tax cuts, including for the top um, 2%. Mm -hmm. He'll give his Social Security Commission a lot of leeway um, to, to, to mess around with entitlements. Mm -hmm. um, he'll probably do something pretty significant on the deficit, which will box him in in terms of spending. And that's sort of the more moderate route. And I think they're going to try to do that, and I think it'll be tested because you know the the Congress that Obama's going to face is going to be more extreme than the Congress that Clinton even faced. Right. So the question is, can you triangulate with the Tea Party, or will they just you know pull you all the way to the right? Um, the other model would be to say that um, that a you know he has to sort of communicate more effectively what he's done, and he needs to lay out a sort of a more bold economic agenda, right? Um, and that if he doesn't get the economy down his re-election is toast no matter what he does. Mm -hmm. So his focus is going to be you know, on jobs, 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 and he's going to do everything he can to get the economy moving again, including you know, threatening to use um, reconciliation in the Senate for some of these key things that he wants to do when applicable. Because right now, there's a lot of gridlock in the Senate. He's not getting much done with 59 votes. So how's he going to get anything done with 51 votes? So I see sort of an inevitable clash looming over how the Senate is run. Uh, if he wants to get any of his uh, agenda passed subsequently. And that is a much more sort of fight that would rally the base, um, but you know might not necessarily play well um, with a lot of cable news commentators. So I don't know how it's, I don't know. We haven't really heard enough from the White House to see how it's going to shake out. Over here. Yeah, I, I'm curious, you know, in, in hearing your narrative and, and sort of this conversation, um, how much of this just really comes down to the, the, the possibility that the, the White House did not provide its base with an enemy? Yeah. That, you know, I mean, there's this huge wave. Yeah. It was a wave in response to the Bush administration. 
and then the White House came to embody a lot of the challenges that the Bush administration had left. Yeah. But unlike the Bush administration, which you know one could argue Machiavellian in a Machiavellian way, you know, the, uh, Dick Cheney was on board with targeting gay marriage as an issue in the middle of uh, an eight-year project uh, to keep its base mobilized. <coughs> the Obama administration failed to give its base anything to fight against. Yeah. And so there's nothing to frame itself with. Well, I think the base was looking for stuff to fight for. At that point, mm. I mean, they just—they had just the same. They're the same, right? No, they're not the same because they had just gotten. Well, maybe they are, but the question is, they had just gotten out of eight years of Bush, and Democrats and, and progressives were very excited that they could get all this stuff done on a variety of fronts, and so all the energy went into passing everything. Um, and what the White House never quite figured out is, what do you do if your main opponent is a Democrat? Do you know what I mean? What if your opponent is Ben Nelson or Max Baucus? Or, um, and it's most likely from a state you didn't win in 2008. Um, and that's who's blocking your agenda. And, and not only that, but uh, they were people who were helped elected by Howard Dean as part of his 50 state strategy. I mean, this is the blowback the party is facing now. Um, and I'm not sure that they know what to do about that. I mean, one way to do, which is what I suggested, is that Obama you know, try to you know, use his people against them. Um, and that would have been an enemy they could have fight for, they, they could have fought against. And they, a lot of people would have been more than happy um, to go after you know, Max Baucus during healthcare. Um, they weren't comfortable doing that, either because he thought it was just going to end up losing a vote that he could have had otherwise, or um, he felt like as the head of his own party, he couldn't do it. And because he put Organizing for America and the DNC, it was part of the party and just wouldn't be appropriate. We will see now whether the Tea Parties motivate the base. They haven't motivated them so far. I mean, people know the Tea Parties are extreme. Americans um, seem to sort of know that, and they don't seem to care. Um, a lot of the, the most interesting thing about 2010 to me is the amount of extreme right-wing people that are going to win. We keep hearing about Christine O'Donnell in Delaware, but you know, Ron Johnson in Wisconsin, Ken Buck in Colorado, Pat Toomey in Pennsylvania. They might not all get elected. These guys would have never gotten elected in 2008 or 2006, and they may not have even gotten elected in 2004. So, to me, that's an interesting thing to look at, and maybe the Tea Party will be the best foil for the Democrats. Maybe they will, it will look Ob make Obama look sane and rational. Maybe they'll hold some crazy hearings on his birth certificate. Um, maybe you know, they'll go too far, and, and that will motivate the base. But I, I, I don't think the, that's what the base is looking for. I think the base is looking for a bold agenda that they can fight for, and I think that's what they've heretofore not really seen. Okay, uh, right over here. And then we'll Yes. Um, so Obama was a smart guy. Yeah. Right. Do, do you think? I mean, he clearly made some pretty colossal mistakes. Do, do you think it, it, the, the, it, the reason he made his mistakes sort of boils down to inexperience and naivete, or do you think it boils down to some something else that he did at one point that sort of has had this snowball effect? Like, is it sort of a small thing at the beginning, or do you think it's just? He wasn't sort of experienced the legislative process. Yeah. Well, I, I should say just in defense that he could have done everything that you know I or other people are suggesting. It could be an exact same political problem because of the economy, which he can only do so much about. Um, so it's hard to really say. I mean, in in a way, I, I think he's done a fairly good job considering the problems he's had to face. But I mean, I, I really do think that the the major sort of key strategic decisions that were made in the first few months of his administration, as he was planning the administration after the election, you know, from November 2008 to sort of January 2009, I think sort of set the course um, for 
the rest of his presidency because you know he put those key people in charge and he deferred to them on some major major decisions. Um, you know he de he deferred to not deferred to them, but I mean Gates had a lot of say on Afghanistan. Um, Rom had a huge amount of say on the legislative uh, process, how they were going to deal with the Hill. I mean Obama wasn't in most of those meetings. You know I mean Rom and his deputy chief staff Jim Messina. I mean they were in those meetings. Um, so, and, and I, I don't really know, there, I, I've, been, I've been talking to sort of more liberal types, they've been asking me, you know, was Obama a change agent who um, got co-opted by the establishment, or was he really just the establishment masquerading as change? Um, and I asked the Howard Dean. The answer Dean, is yes. The answer is both, in a way. I mean, but uh, I asked that question to, to Howard <coughs> Dean recently, and, you know, Dean said, you know, it's too soon to know. But I mean, Obama's always had that tension, right? I mean, even in Chicago, he somehow f figured out a way to work the daily machine, but also stay above it. And that's almost impossible to do in Chicago. Could anyone have brought, but Barack Obama have done that? I mean, probably not. So he does have this amazing ability to sort of balance two worlds. And I thought, I think he thought he could do that in the White House. He could balance the grassroots and the more establishment types um, and blend it. But I, I think because the office of the presidency is so limiting to begin with, that it really went all in sort of one direction. And, you know, he sort of belatedly has been out on the campaign trail selling his agenda, but I think, you know, there needs to be a lot more of that um, going forward. We'll come over to this side of the room and then move back. Hi, well, just, um, to what extent, I mean, you, you talked at the beginning about the Obama campaign and sort of the Democrat victory overall being, uh, being sort of interchangeable and the same thing. Um, but a lot of people sort of seem to suggest that actually um, lots and lots of people were voting for Obama, but weren't necessarily Democrats, and it didn't represent a shift yeah. um, that way. Yeah. Do, do you set store on this, or, or do you? I mean, was healthcare the wrong thing at the wrong time because people had not moved that far yet, and that Obama needs to get you know some kind of momentum going yeah. first to get more support? Yeah. Well, in terms of, I mean, it, they may not have been voting for um, Obama as a Democrat, but the fact is, you know, twenty-something Democrats got elected in the House because of Obama. So people, he, they were clearly riding his coattails, and people were marking down. I mean, a, a decent percentage of Obama supporters didn't decide to didn't vote for anyone down ballot, um, but enough did that Democrats got elected in, in all these interesting places. Um, as a result, on health care, I don't really believe that he would be doing any better if he hadn't done health care. Because what would he have done otherwise? I mean, people say, well, he should have done energy otherwise. Well, cap and trade is just as controversial as health care, if not more controversial. I mean, not only was health care something he said he would do, but it was a major festering problem. And I think he argued persuasively in the beginning that if you wanted to fix the economy, you couldn't do it without fixing health care. Um, that they were so intertwined, they were the same issue, that you couldn't separate them. Now, somehow, they've gotten separated. And um, either that was poor messaging, um, by him or effective messaging um, by the Tea Party or just the <coughs> fact is, you know, healthcare is so complicated that it's an economy unto itself and you really can't um, tie it to the rest of the economy. But, but I, I do think they're related and I do think that, you know, um, in the end, I think it'll be viewed as, you know, a major legislative accomplishment, um, you know, but I think it, it's probably just the first step. I mean, as much as Republicans are talking about repealing it, I mean, I think a lot of Democrats now view the bill um, as only <coughs> the, the first thing they want to do. I mean, because, you know, a lot of Democrats want a lot more out of that legislation. I mean, not only do they want a public option, but they want to be able to negotiate um, lower drugs from Canada. They want a lot more regulation on the insurance companies. Um, I don't know how it's going to play out. You know, we, we are already seeing a lot of backlash in corporate America against this. So this thing, it's, it's hard to say what's going to happen. Okay, I'm going to come back over here. I'll come back. Um, 
So how, Charles, first, how much of this is a, a question of sort of uh, ideology versus pragmatism? Um, in, in some ways, sort of ideology is what people believe in pragmatism is how you get things done. And some people may argue that that Obama has replaced his ideology yeah. for a sort of pragmatism as an ideology, that yeah. that's really the sort of main focus of how you, how you get things done. And, and sort of connected to that, do we also have kind of like a reality problem, which is that the Democrats don't, because of the way campaigns are financed, the Democrats may not actually have an ideology, um, or they may have the same ideology as people on the right. And, that, and you know, that, that, that at the end of the day, they're, they're Democrats, but they may not actually you know, believe in a progressive change and, and sort of the, those questions of ideology, how much do they yeah. matter? Well, I think the first thing mattered a lot because I think, you know, Obama during his campaign was very loath to, to talk about an ideology and I think that proved problematic after the economic crisis because I think, you know, the sort of populism that Obama was afraid of doing would have been very smart politics at a time when the banks were essentially screwing the country. I mean, um, and it, the bailout may have been um, good policy, but it was very bad politics. And the fact that Obama didn't sort of distance himself from that sooner and say, this was a Bush bailout, okay? Um, and, then, and, then, and then sort of work to check some of his economic advisors um, and counterbalance them with people that weren't so close to either Wall Street, in the case of Tim Geithner, or the sort of deregulation of the Clinton era in terms of Larry Summers, um, I think, you know, was also um, bad politics. And I think and I think the bigger thing is, you know, and Marshall and I again um, talked about this last night, I mean, the inability to make an affirmative case for the ability of the government to help people in a time of need was really debilitating um, to the broader progressive movement because Obama passed a stimulus, but he didn't really show, you know, over and over and over again that, you know, the government was, gonna, was here to help. And that was really that the banks had screwed you over, that corporate America had screwed you over, they had put you on your own, and that now you were going to, and Bush had, you know what I mean, and, and Bush had screwed you over, and now, you know, finally the helping hand had come, you know, kind of like Roosevelt did. Um, instead, he was sort of like, didn't really lay out what government was doing, and the Tea Party had a very, very, very strong anti-government argument. And so if one side is laying out a very anti-government, government's evil and the other side is saying well you know, government's not so bad and we can help in certain cases but not every case and that's what, what guess which argument's going to win Who, who's going to win that yelling match and I think that's where it really happened and I mean I thought that Obama when he came in was actually going to you know reframe government as a progressive force mm -hmm. because he said in his inaugural speech it's not about gov whether government's too big or too small it's about whether government works and I mm -hmm. thought he was going to show first through the stimulus and then through a lot of other pieces of legislation this is government working you know what I mean? Here's what Uncle Sam is doing for you. Um, but instead, you know, now government is viewed as the enemy, and I think, and and I think, you know, some people, uh, I don't know what Elaine Kmart would argue, but she would say, well, this is a long-term trend, and government has been giving, you know, steadily less popular for a long time. There's nothing Obama could have done about it. But the fact is, the fact that he missed that window, well, now we know government's unpopular, and it's going to be hard to get it back to popularity anytime soon. What was the second part? Yeah, that, <coughs> so coming back to this side, let me see in the back row there. Okay, ma'am. This is just a little question. Don't you think governments start to be viewed as the enemy during the Bush years? Yeah. The government is bad, Patriot yeah. Act. You know, you can't really trust yeah. the government. Well, there's no doubt that the demonization of the government um, during the Bush era and way before that, honestly. Right, I was going to say the 1960s, um, yeah. pretty much the day right. established. The, the Reagan, you mean the whole Reagan era? I mean, yeah. The Clinton, I mean, Clinton <coughs> saying the era of big government is over, I think was incredibly problematic messaging um, for the Democrats. I mean, it got him reelected, but I think, you know, it just further undermined people's trust in the government. And so, um, 
Yeah, I mean that's tough. To, that's tough to do, but change I mean that, right? it's tough to change that dynamic. But but I mean that still is what every Democrat believes. I mean you're not a Democrat unless you believe in the ability of government to help people, um, and so that's really the core of the philosophy of the Democratic Party. And so um, I think at some point you know you have to start making an affirmative case for this, or else people are going to go to the opposite end of the spectrum, which is you know the Tea Parties. Uh, yeah, I'm lucky to have one. In there. Um, I just wanted to ask about the tension between the base and progressives and the administration from that euphoric moment in Grant Park, and specifically about your reaction to Robert Gibbs's kind of comments uh, chastising the base. Yeah. Um, does he have a case, um, as you mentioned, and I was just thinking about, you know, it's, wow, it's been 21 months, and I was thinking about the accomplishments of this administration, <coughs> healthcare, student loans, three times the size of AmeriCorps Peace Corps, investments in high speed and solar, uh, high-speed rail and solar, tax cuts for 95% of Americans, more pay <coughs> equity for women, two young women on the Supreme Court. I mean, the list can go on. Yeah. So, do you yeah. have a point? Or? Well, I, I think so. I mean, there's certainly, I mean, I wouldn't phrase it that way, and I have a lot of issues with the messaging coming out of the White House now with regards to the base, because um, I don't think it's going to help them either. Um, yeah, I mean, I think he's accomplished a lot, and I think there were certain segments of the base that were never going to be satisfied with Obama. Certain segments of the base were never for Obama to begin with. Um, they were for Edwards or, or whoever. Um, and they always viewed Obama as a flawed messenger. Um, I think most... Unlike Edwards. Yeah, unlike Edwards, right? Um, but uh, but um, I think, by and large, people want, wanted to be supportive of him and wanted him to succeed. And I think, you know, it's not the base's fault that Obama hasn't communicated his accomplishments. Right. And it's not the base's fault that um, when they've tried to help, they've been really shut down by the White House and castigated by the White House. And, you know, when Move On ran ads blocking conservative Democrats, you know, targeting conservative Democrats who are blocking health care, they ran those ads because they wanted health care done. They wanted the same result as Obama did. Um, and they believed that a lot of, um, you know, some of these blue dogs were blocking it. Um, and instead, you know, Rom called him effing retarded. And so, I mean, I think that started to take its toll, and that was very demoralizing. And I think, you know, the fact is, there is an enthusiasm gap, there is disaffection on the left. And instead of saying, you know, you guys should just appreciate us more, um, I don't think that's how you're going to get them back on track. I mean, I think the way they're going to get back on track is, you know, to be inspired again. I mean, Obama always sort of played, um, to the better angels, and I think you know they're going to have to do that once again if they want to get people back on board. You know, the sort of professional left, stop whining, that whole thing. I mean, it, it, it's just very, it's very you know, counterproductive messaging. Back here, uh, Woodward has a mixed record, but apparently his situation has evolved to the extent that people are afraid not to be interviewed by him. What, what is your impression of the accuracy of this new book, Obama's Wars? Um, I haven't read it, so I can't. <laughs> Say I know that after, um, I know that he floated this ridiculous rumor that Hillary was going to be um, vice president, which everyone in around Hillary knows is not true. So um, for whatever reason, he he got a very he you know was able to uh, find a very nice rumor that sold him a lot of books, um, and I'll leave it there. Um, you've talked a lot about Obama's messaging and how it's gone wrong, but to what extent is that the fault of the media and, yeah. and the portrayal in the media and not necessarily what they're doing from uh, either a political or a policy stance, but what's actually like breaking through the list? Yeah. Well, everyone always wants to blame the media. I mean, every single president wants to blame the media, and it's always the media's fault. I mean, the media's been pretty fair to Obama by and large. I mean, if anything, people thought he was too much of a cheerleader. Um, they were too much of a cheerleader for him um, during the campaign. The interesting thing is during 
the campaign, the Obama supporters communicated very effectively to each other. And the Obama campaign on their blog, I know Sam Graham Felsen was here a, a few weeks ago, Obama's chief blogger, and he's a really good friend. And I know, you know, Obama, uh, Sam left the nation to go work for Obama to essentially cover the campaign for the campaign. And so there was an incredible amount of ownership that came up through those channels. If you were a good organizer, a good activist, you know, it was very likely that you were you could be in a video, you could be on the blog, uh, you would be in email, and they talked to each other a lot that way, and they were able to bypass a lot of the media who was just focusing on the noise, right? Um, of the, even we forget, you know, how the media covered the Clinton Obama campaign. I mean, it wasn't always very substantive either. Um, and I think, you know, for whatever reason, that communication hasn't been done as well in the White House. I mean, they put a lot of stuff up on the White House website, and there's a ton of content there, but that sort of communication between Obama and his supporters uh, has kind of frayed, and I think you know, if they had done that more effectively, they could have bypassed um, some of the media, which is always you know, just all about um, scandal or you know, who's up um, and who's down. But I, mean, I think Obama, of all presidents, can't really complain about the media. I mean, they were so integral to his rise. I'm going to come over here and then back over. I'd like your comments on this. I can remember at the uh, 208 election, toward the end of it, there were commentaries to the effect, uh, I think personified principally by Karl Rove, that he wasn't worried about that election, that within two years the country was in such uh, problems and <laughs> debt and war and so forth and so on that as they were leaving power, that in two years things would change and they could look forward. Republicans could look forward to a great resurgence. Yeah, is that uh, true? Well, Rove probably knew better than everyone, right? What was what was uh, in store for Obama because he helped create all some of those problems. Probably, I mean, everyone knew it was going to be an incredibly difficult um, <clears throat> election. Uh, I mean, not election; it was going to be incredibly difficult to campaign. And I think Obama, um, at the beginning, the interesting thing was, you know, for a, a good chunk of the first year, people understood that, um, and they said, you know. We don't expect him to solve these problems right away, and they kind of gave him um, a grace period. Now, all of a sudden, I think you know, as the economy um, has has tended not to get better, and people have started getting more impatient. You know, as the health care bill um, got you know very messy, um, people got angrier about the legislative process. Um, as the Tea Parties people got up there and really started you know demonizing government, people started reevaluating. You know uh, what they thought of the government, and sort of that grace period, um, for whatever reason, is over. And so, uh, but the fact is, you know, he raised those expectations. I mean, so it's kind of hard because you can't say, well, there were too many expectations when the candidate himself is the one who created all of them. Um, uh, it was like that Elliot Spitzer ad. You know, on day one, everything changes. Um, did end up changing for Spitzer and, and not for the better, but um, but uh, but uh, that was night but, two. Night two. <laughs> that was night two. Yeah, night um, two night but uh, <laughs> so I mean, I think they do sort of need to manage um, the expectations game sort of more effectively um, going forward. My feeling is uh, is that the economy doesn't need to be better in 2012; it just needs to be getting better. Um, and I think if people see the signs of progress, they will be more willing. And not only that, but they see. They see what Democrats would do and what Obama would do going forward. I mean, that's what's missing in 2010 is like, what would Democrats do if they retain Congress? I mean, I don't even know, and I cover this stuff. Um, and and sort of B, there aren't there aren't a lot of indicators. There are indicators that economy is getting better, but people don't really see that. Over here. Fired up. Yeah. Ready to go. 
Oh, you guys, you don't know the... Uh, There's an enthusiasm. I'm curious about your opinion on racism in the U.S. and how that's yeah. impacting both what's happening with the Tea Party and with the base. Yeah. Well, it's definitely motivating the Tea Party. I mean, there's, there's, it's not a coincidence that the Tea Party tends to be older, whiter, um, and uh, those two particularly than the rest of the country. And, um, you know, as Marshall said last night, it's sort of like the last gasp of a dying demographic. I mean, these people know that their culture is slipping away and this is their last chance um, to sort of do something about it. So, um, and I think the, the Tea Party is a sort of a direct response to the Obama Rainbow Coalition, right? I mean, the same thing I think that motivate a lot of Obama supporters that they like about Obama is the same thing the Tea Party people hate it um, and they still are not comfortable with. What do you mean in terms of racism motivating the base? Well, um, we know how racism works in this country to maintain the status quo and how um, people in the mainstream um, tend not to be able to negotiate through issues of um, equity and issues of you know, sort of that progressive, what we would have hoped would have been happening more in the U.S. at this time. And so, and all of a sudden, the base has become very quiet. And, you know, some people are saying, um, is there a racial dynamic or a racism at, in, at work here with the base, based either on the inaction of the administration or the, the pushback, you know, afraid to push back against the Tea Party. There's, I see multiple things that it could be, and I'm just wondering from your perspective what it might be. I'm still not sure I quite understand the question. Are you saying that, are you saying that the Obama part segments of the Obama base are also racist? That's um, what I don't quite get. It might be that we have a different understanding of what racism is, but um, I think racism acts in the U.S. regard always, and, um, and so the base is impacted by racism just as the Tea Party is impacted by racism, and sometimes it keeps the base from, I'm assuming, taking action in the best interest of everybody. Um, but it might be that you haven't had that analysis, and so it could be that. Yeah, I'm not. Yeah. Well, let's, let's talk after. Let's, yeah, let's do I'm gonna Go over here and then come back over here. Well, I had two thoughts. One, what if in 2008 the Republicans had what? Would there be a giant Democratic sweep because the economy is rotten? Yes. Okay. So really, all these other issues are kind of secondary. No, that's the what I said earlier in the talk. The economy yeah. is the whole game, yeah. mm -hmm. and it's virtually impossible to solve it and solve it quickly. And this is what Obama is really suffering. And the other thought is this. Who the heck speaks for the Democratic Party? Yeah. Ted Kennedy's gone. Do yeah. Reid and Pelosi. Who wants to turn them on the television? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, the Democrats have a tremendous. Barack Obama speaks for the. I mean, that's the thing is, but that was the thing. Barack Obama speaks for the Democratic Party. Well, but they. But he doesn't Ted want Ken to. He, they miss Ted Kennedy yeah. or somebody yeah. like that yeah. terribly. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that I think you know part of the issue was that um, I mean I think two things when Obama got in there. I think you know he didn't sort of maybe think through the cost that people like Reed and Pelosi, you know, being so closely identified uh, with him, would have um, on his party. But I think you know because they were going to get linked to him either way. I think he more affirmatively had to 
show up as the leader of the party. I mean, he was very reluctant for a long time to be the leader of the Democratic Party because he had such a broad coalition. I mean, but for better or for worse, we only have two political systems. And so I think Obama's inability um, to be sort of seen as Democrat, and, and, his, and I think for about a year, um, sort of the, the fact that um, his team sort of ignored a lot of the party organizations, I think hurt the party a lot. Because um, he was the most dynamic leader and still is the most dynamic um, leader they have. And so I think it's good now that he's you know, out campaigning and he's being seen more um, as the head of the party. But I think you know, they were sort of ambivalent. They thought they could craft a party of one. Um, and I, I don't think that's really possible anymore. Yes, right here. Um, hey, uh, touching on your, um, what you were saying in response to a gentleman's question who's now gone, um, with the inspiration that Obama inspired, is it possible to have that again? And if so, what could it look like? And would the organizers who you spoke to be on board to, to do that again, or are they feeling burned? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I don't think that we're ever going to be, Laura and I also went to Northwestern together, so. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I, I don't think that, um, like, will forever be in this like dark moment of 2010. I mean, I think, you know, for a lot of different reasons, I think the 2012 dynamic um, could be better, you know, not least of which, you know, all these people will be out in, outside of Washington and all these different states and Obama will need them more um, to deliver. And so they'll, they'll be given sort of greater tasks. Um, I think, you know, if the economy is getting better, if the Tea Parties um, come in and sort of overreach, I mean, that could also motivate um, people. And then, you know, who's the contrast? I mean, it's, it's very easy to make a 2010 election a referendum. It's a lot harder to make a 2012 election a referendum because there's going to be a choice. I mean, there's going to be another Republican candidate. And if that candidate is someone like Sarah Palin, which I think is entirely possible, that's going to really motivate um, the Democrats to go out and work again. And not only that, but it's going to cause a lot of internal splits in the Republican Party. So I think a lot of the divisions you're seeing um, in the Democratic Party are going to start to appear again in the Republican Party, that um, the sort of Republican establishment is just basically trying to co-opt the Tea Party temporarily to get a bunch of candidates elected who are going to push uh, a corporate agenda. You know, that's essentially what the Republican Party always wants to do. Um, and uh, But that said, like in 2012, if the Tea Party still has a lot of power, they're going to play <coughs> in primaries. And, you know, they're going to want to nominate someone like Palin. You know, someone who is like, you know, their grassroots uh, star. And they're not going to want to nominate someone like Mitt Romney, who is a sort of much more respectable mainstream conservative. They're not going to want to nominate Tim Pawlenty from government of Minnesota, I don't think. You know, and so I, I think they have enough power now to decide a Republican nomination. Um, and I think that could be the best thing that ever happens to Barack Obama. Um, and, and so I think, you know, and I also, think, I also think if Obama's vulnerable, and I hate to make predictions, but I do think if Obama's looking vulnerable in 2012 um, and Palin senses that this is her moment, she could get in, in the same way that Obama jumped in in 2008, sensing this was his moment. And, uh, uh, and I think, so we'll see. I mean, I think Obama needs Palin. Um, he, could, he could defeat Romney or Pawlenty or someone else, but it would just be a more difficult election. If he gets someone like Palin or someone like her, um, who's really pop, you know, popular with, with the right, but not sort of the rest of the country, I think you know, things could work out better for him. And then most presidents, generally speaking, tend to, tend to do their, you know, their best work in the second term. Mm -hmm. And presumably gives back seats to the Democrats 
at the same time that it reelects Obama. Well, Republicans are going to be sort of <coughs> temporarily occupying seats. some of these seats now. In the same way that Democrats were renting seats for the last two cycles, Republicans mm -hmm. are going to win in some places where you know it's going to be very hard for them to hold on to. Ari Berman, thank you very Thanks much. So much.